time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace today. Thank you for the praises that we can sing and the sacrifice of our lips that we can render to you for so great a salvation. We thank you, Lord, that in light of all of the great and terrible things that are associated with the day of the Lord as we've been studying, that we have even greater a theology of hope, a theology of salvation, so that we can take courage, so that we can find comfort and we can find uh, strength in the midst of all of the tribulation that is coming and that is resident in the world even now. And Father, we pray that you would help us, therefore, to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand, which means that everything is under his authority and power and dominion. And we understand that nothing is outside of his sovereign control. We pray that you would help us, as Peter says, to set our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, not to allow our hope to wander. Help it not to shift from one temporal thing to another, but help us to be heavenly minded, to set our minds on the things that are eternal, invisible, unshakable so that we can live lives that are consistent and in keeping with your truth and with your will and with your glory. Help us, Lord. Even the principle of deception that we're going to be looking at here, we know that we live in a world that's full of lies. Lies all around us. Deception all around us. All the time. And so we pray that you would Help us to be those that see beyond the surface. Help us to be able to have that constant spiritual and eternal mindset so that we can discern the times. We can be able to see the signs of the times for what they are. And Lord, we thank you most of all that our future, our hope is secure. That we have reserved for us a hope in heaven that cannot be fade away, and all because of your Son, all because of Christ. We thank you for his sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is our last uh, section in Thessalonians dealing with the subject of eschatology, at least in relationship to the Antichrist that we have been studying, and we come to it at last. It's almost like this is the consequence of what happens to a world that has been given over to a system that is dominated by Antichrist. And so this is the future judgment that we're looking at here, the future judgment. And that judgment consists of several things. Number one, it consists of a coming deception. Number two, it consists in humanity's faith in a lie. I'm going to really zero in on that word lie because that's very important in the text exegetically and also the righteous nature of God's future judgment. That's what we're really talking about. In Psalm chapter 2, if you turn there with me for a moment, Psalm chapter 2 has long predicted and looked ahead, as it were, to the time that we are talking about here in Thessalonians. A time, as Psalm 2 talks about, where the nations and the kings of the earth and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, it is a time when humanity will want above everything else It's autonomy. Autonomy simply means that humanity will want above everything to live in a self-governing fashion. In a fashion that says we are the measure of all things. We are the judge of ourselves. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. We are the measure and extent of all things and we need no sort of outside divine influence whatsoever. 
We don't need the Lord of heaven and his authority. But again, Psalm 2 speaks so prophetically about what we're talking about here because in verses 4 and 5, we have the divine perspective and the divine response and the divine counsel of heaven that responds to this pretended autonomy that humanity seeks. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So going on. And and at the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And now the New Testament Christian has has sort of a decision to make at this point because uh, there's been a debate for a long time in Christian thought. What do we do with the imprecatory sections of Scripture in the Old Testament. Now, that's important because we're saying that's in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, apparently because of the theocracy, Israel was a nation, Israel had an army, and Israel had physical enemies that they were to defend themselves again against. And in the interest of taking possession um, and protecting their land, they were, by God, ordered to destroy their enemies. And so we have to do some serious theological work and say, can we pray like David, like the psalmists, who often speak of God shattering our enemies, breaking their teeth, and so on and so forth. Well, the reality is is that Psalm 2 is an imprecatory psalm, but it talks about the future. So it's something that will take place not in the time of the psalmist, but in the future time. In the future, God will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. As someone once said, if you think the judgment of God is bad in the Old Testament, stay tuned. Because what's coming will take your breath away. And that's what we're seeing here in Thessalonians. Matter of fact, if you just follow on in Psalm 2, it is almost a parallel to what we're seeing here in Thessalonians. Now, therefore, kings show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and that you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take Refuge in Him. And so now, here we are now, many millennia later. And how soon, how much sooner is the wrath of the Son to come than the time David wrote this. And so that's exactly what Thessalonians is giving us here. It's giving us a time where this Antichrist world is going to be judged by God. And when He judges the world, He judges it righteously the judgment however we could say based even on the exegesis of this text is an already not yet judgment i know some of y'all are tired of me saying that but i'm going to say it for a long time so you better not get mad at me too much because it's something i have to say because it is the nuance of scripture in other words the deception that is alluded to here in scripture i am convinced has already begun And there is even a shift in the text. There's a shift in the grammar of the text where we would have expected the Apostle Paul to begin occupying the future tense of the Greek verbs, but he actually uses the present tense. When he says, for example, verse 11, For this reason, God, and now look at the text, mine says, will send upon them a deluding influence. And, matter of fact, uh, in my footnote, maybe yours, it says there, literally, 
is sending. You see that? That's right, because uh, pempe, the, uh, the, the Greek uh, verb that he uses here, is just that. It is, a, it is a present active tense that suggests that the sending activity of God has already begun and it is continuously happening. Now, we understand that that present tense, however, is not limited to the present tense, but is also and has a futuristic aspect. Complicated Greek, isn't it? Actually, it's wonderful because it allows us to do the type of theology that Paul wants us to do, which is to see this already not yet aspect. God is and will, that probably be an acceptable translation if you just stick to the grammar and the exegesis, God is and will send upon them a a deluding influence so that they believe what is False. Now, obviously, part of verse 11 that needs to be explained is the very beginning of it, that, that sort of co- coordinating conjunction and that phrase that says, for this reason. You said it's just a terrible place to start a sermon, but I have to because there's just no way I'd get to all this in the last sermon. Can you imagine? And so verse 11 demands a bit of explanation for this reason. For what reason? What is the reason? Well, it's obvious. For the reason that they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So if man, in his desire for autonomy and in following after and wondering after the beast, opt out of the truth opt out of the gospel, in other words, and that's what truth is talking about there. It's not just sort of general truth or any truth. It's just, it's just specifically truth as it relates to the saving power of Jesus Christ. They opt out of that truth, and by virtue of their rebellion and rejection of the truth, for this reason, God is sending a deluding influence and... Therefore, it sort of draws up a couple more questions. Really, if you think about it, it sort of brings up a couple other matters. Like, for example, what does this delusion refer to and how does it work? Right? And then, second of all, what is this falsehood that the Apostle Paul is talking about? And more specifically, what is the lie? Because when the NASB translates this phrase into what is false, it's actually uh, a, not a very specific translation. It's actually what other translations have it as, which is uh, so that they believe the lie. Uh, now, I'll come back to that in a minute here, but first things first, I think we should answer the, the, the first thing, and that is to talk about this, the sending of this delusion, the sending of this influence. Now, we can understand this uh, today, even based on scriptures that we do know, and we know exactly what they're talking about. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, which I'm going to read to you. So don't fear that I just skipped over a bunch of texts, but I'm going to read this to you. But again, it just reminds us that what's going on here is that there is this, this divinely sent deluding influence upon humanity in a sense preconditioning them preconditioning them for future judgment that's what's going on it's almost as if god is saying this and i'll make it here just wrap it up real quick if you don't remember anything about my sermon today this is like what it is you won't have the truth you have a lie fine i will fix you in that i will harden you in that i will give you over to that and uh, it's terrifying when we think about it. But Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of this. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of this. 1 John 4 speaks of this. And now let me read it to you because these are familiar texts that you know. It's, it's In a sense, in principle, it is the same thing that we find in these passages of Scripture. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. I'm saying the course of this world is essentially the same thing as the deluding influence. The course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that does not mean, brothers and sisters, that every unbeliever is demon-possessed. But it does mean that every unbeliever is under a demonic influence. That's right. 
Every unbeliever is under some sort of demonic influence that, that is kind of atmospheric. And that's the language he's using here, the spirit of the air. In other words, there's an atmospheric, all-pervasive, all-pervasive uh, per, uh, uh, sort of influence all around us everywhere because it's the world that leads them to, most of all, disobedience, which is parallel to what we're seeing here in Thessalonians. Next text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning verse 3, talk about demonic influence. Listen to this. And even if our gospel is veiled, veiled, not understood, not perceived, not received, but rejected, it is so, it is so to the minds of those who are, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Exactly what we're looking at Thessalonians. In whose case, the God of this world, that's talking about Satan, not the true and living God, but the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. There it is. There is, a, there is that spiritual blindness, that spiritual deception, that spiritual influence. It is, uh, uh, it, 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 they are unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is all just gospel at this point. What about 1 John? 1 John says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And there, the word spirit literally refers to a teacher. To a teacher. So false teachers that do not profess orthodox Christology is not of God. And he says... This is the spirit of Antichrist. And so I would say is that that is the teaching of Antichrist. That is an Antichrist spirit influence of which you have heard that it is coming. And now, here it is, is already in the world. Isn't that interesting? So it's like there's almost like a future Antichrist principle that's coming, no question about it, but in an inaugurated sense, it is already active in the world and it's all around you. It's all around you. The tip of the spear is false teaching. False teaching. That is the tip of the spear. That is the way that people are being ensnared by the devil to believe his lies. To get them to reject the truth is the way to get people to embrace error. And it's interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul, if you go back to Thessalonians, he says that God will send upon them a deluding influence, and so it does no good whatsoever to try to get God off the hook, because Paul is saying explicitly that this coming deception is coming at the hand of God. Matter of fact, the word that he uses here, energeas plenes, that Greek uh, phrase literally means a working of error, a working of error. You know, these translations... I, Sometimes I just want to write my own. I'm serious. Because diluting influences, whoo, that's a little bit of a stretch. It's literally ergos, work, and then planos, error. Working of error. That's exactly what Paul said. Why can't these committees just interview Paul and just do the right thing? <laughs> I mean, he left us his word. Anyway, see, see what I got to deal with? Imagine me doing circles in my... My uh, library just mad at myself or mad at somebody that doesn't exist, no access to. The activity of error, what does that consist of? So I asked two questions. What is the nature of that? What does that look like? And what does it refer to specifically in the text? Is it just general error? Well, there are all sorts of positions on this. For example, some would say that what is being talked about here in terms of this error, in terms of this lie that they're going to end up believing in, is that it is uh, the claims of the Antichrist. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But I think what it consists of ultimately is that they buy into the whole thing. They buy into the entire Antichrist system and they find their identity there, so much so that they're willing to identify with it. And in the midst of that, they embrace the ultimate lie, the ultimate error. Now, if this deluding influence is, at least in principle, operating today, what might a world look like that is under this sort of deluding influence today? I have a couple of ideas. I think what it may look like is this, as you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. But I think it may look something like this. 
It probably consists of a world that is in total freefall morally and spiritually. A world where we are being increasingly confronted with man's depravity. And you know what? Technology has just become a quicker, faster way to access that depravity. That's all it is. We're just confronted with it faster. As man becomes technologically self-conscious, it looks in the mirror and it sees the doctrine of total depravity. I was just watching an interview with um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson where he talks about that in Ireland, where he's from. He says, you know, I think we're about 30 years ahead of the West uh, in America. We're a bit more accelerated than you guys are in terms of this moral decline. And what he said was, um, where I'm from, uh, children as young as elementary students are being told and encouraged to reassign and to pick their own genders and parents are legally not allowed to interfere with that process. <laughs> like, yeah, that's pretty far gone. You know, I mean, I think still people today can go to like PTA meeting or something and protest or do something. Not over there. It's a legal issue now. You cannot interfere with that. Think about that. Even if you're the parent. Even at that age. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, I, you know, I, he says, I, I hope that the coming cataclysm happens faster than, than sooner than later because I can't imagine how wretched the world can get under that kind of thinking. But that's exactly right. What does a world like this, under this kind of deception, look like? Moral, political, financial scandal everywhere, all the time, everywhere. We cannot scarcely keep up with the news not even for a moment, without engaging and feeling dirty because you feel like you're contaminated with the political gossip, the intrigue, the backstabbing, the criminality of it all, the compromise. Just a sample of that. Recently, Western civilization is beginning to see the limits of its postmodernity. Matter of fact, several, uh, several stories have just emerged in the news where female athletes are now beginning to protest because they're seeing the limits of this whole transgender obsession with the culture. So now you have female athletes, everything from track and field athletes to women, girl wrestlers, and they're saying this is uh, becoming, uh, this political correctness game is kind of, you know, ran out because, uh, you know, as one girl put it, I was watching an interview, she says it's sad when the race that you're about to run, you've been training for for weeks and months, it's already decided before you even begin because I'm racing next to a girl that's actually a guy and I know he's going to beat me. So it's like, what's the point of racing? Same thing with wrestling. Can you imagine this? And that person is called the person who's out of their mind. That person has become the immoral one. I see what, you know, in the, in the spirit of presuppositional apologetics, you know what I'd like to do with that thought? Let's take it to its ultimate conclusion. Forget about the track and field uh, uh, scenario. Let's go straight to the octagon. Let's go right into the UFC octagon. Let's put a transgender girl, which would be a boy, in there with girls, or let's take a, a, a girl that wants to be a boy and put her in there with a the heavyweight champion or whatever it is today, and let's see how far your little transgender experiment takes you. You know where it'll take you? To the first UFC fatality. That's where it'll take you. It's already happened. Thanks, Robert. Apparently, you're, I should have called you for this sermon. <laughs> but you know what I mean. These kind of examples are ample. They're everywhere. They're, they're going on everywhere, and people are unaware. I mean, I was talking with... Uh, uh, my friend Joseph Urban uh, the other night, and I was catching him up to ski. You know, Urban's a bit of a Puritan, almost monastic. Don't tell him I said that. But he's just not in the world. <laughs> I tell him stuff, he's like, huh? And we were talking about futurism and where the world is going and stuff. And I said, you know, recently, I think it was in Sweden, they're doing these big old conventions now where they have live on stage implantations going on, where they implant chips into people now, computer chips. And those smart chips control your house and, you know, you walk in your house, it opens your lock and it turns your, your lights on and, you know, Alexa comes on and, you know, it just, you're like in the matrix, you know, through that chip. Okay, that's coming. That's for, and he's like, what? Like, he just couldn't imagine we live in a world. Like, yeah, you know, uh, whenever you want to join the rest of us, you know, that's what's going on in the world, Joseph. You know, that kind of thing. And it's sort of takes your breath away, but it doesn't if you believe the doctrine of total depravity or let's say you're not a Calvinist 
God will forgive you. But if you're not a Calvinist, just read Romans chapter 1. Let's walk through what does a world look like under the influence of deception that God gives the world over to? What may it look like? I think Romans 1 is the perfect commentary on all this. A scripture that you're all very familiar with, but I think it's still worth reckoning with the profundity of it. It says, The wrath of God, verse 18, is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the number one, that's the number one thing. That is what the, the sinful nature produces. That's step number one of depravity. Number one, suppress truth. Get rid of it. Sear your conscience. Suppress the truth. Violate your conscience. Do not abide in the truth. That's where God, you know, what does God, what does a Paul say? I think it's in first Corinthians 13. You can't do anything against the truth just for the truth. In other words, truth is indomitable. Therefore, suppress it. And he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That's right. I'm actually, I asked our sister Carmen to make me, I guess she makes t-shirts. I said, can you make me a t-shirt that says a atheist? Meaning like I don't believe in atheists. And it's based on this text right here. Because what can be known about God is evident within them because God has made it evident to them. And what is that specifically? Well, specifically, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, what that's saying, brothers and sisters, is that any hardened atheist, if he or she were just to go take a stroll down the shore of a beautiful beach on a sunset afternoon and look out into the ocean, if you come back and conclude what a marvelous accident all of this is. What God is saying is that you are absolutely in Looney Tune land because everything screams omnipotence, eternity, infinity, God, something greater than you, something masterful and wonderful did all of this. And then for you to suppress that God-given impulse to give Him that glory and to worship the creation instead. That's truth suppression on display. That's depravity. That's delusion. He says, instead, he says, even though uh, they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they didn't know Him salvifically, but they knew Him in this general sense. They did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Exactly like I was trying to explain to a young transgender girl the other day who I said, yes, ma'am, and she got mad at me and said, no, you address me as sir. I said, no, ma'am, I, I, I don't dwell in alternate universes and, and I'm not in the twilight zone. And if you wish to live as a totally delusional human being your whole life, that's up to you. Do you understand how much warfare I go through to get there to tell that girl that? Do you understand the demonic battle that's going on right there? Do you understand the nature of the warfare that's involved with that? And that's the world. Why? Because it's been given over by God. In, in a sense, already, you can see it in examples like that. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's exactly what will happen, as Jeremiah says. A man who rejects God is so foolish that he cuts a tree down, makes his God out of half the tree, and the rest of the tree cooks supper. And Jeremiah says, you're stupid. He uses the word stupid, so I can use it. That's the idolatry of man. That's what happens. That's, that's kind of the terminus point spiritually, is that people end up erecting their own God all the time, every time. Therefore, God gave them over. If they will not have the Creator, this is the consequence. He gives you over to the lust of their heart, to impurity, and to their, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Think about that, that their bodies may be designed. After all, what do you have if it's not your body? After all, what's the most precious thing to you? Your body, if it's not your body. After all, that is your temple. That is your vessel. That is as personal and intimate as it gets. And God says right there, eminently, in your person, you suffer the consequences of this sort of idolatry. 
And he says that God gave them over to their lusts, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Consequently, that is the exact same phrase that is used in Thessalonians that we'll look at in a little bit here. But this uh, two hasodas, uh, uh, which is the lie. Uh, this is what is Paul is using the same word here. For they exchange the truth of God for a lie or the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And, and basically what it's getting at here is that now what has happened is that depravity has gotten to the point where it doesn't even obey natural law. Uh, let alone supernatural law, let alone uh, the Word of God, let alone the Ten Commandments, but natural law, uh, in other words, that which even the brute beasts understand. Now, because of depravity, they don't even abide by those things. Think of it, guys. Think of the depravity that God is handing humanity over to. He says, and for this reason, uh, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women. Uh, no, I read that already. And in the, name, in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I remember watching a video that was documenting the homosexual lifestyle, and there before us on the television was an example of a man who had gone so deeply into sexual immorality and depravity and homosexuality that there he was dying on a deathbed in a hospital covered in boils and things that doctors couldn't even understand. His entire body was just corroding, decomposing before their very eyes with so many diseases and infections and things they couldn't, they were baffled. And that person in the video actually confessed Christ, became a Christian, and he said, if I would have just listened to the Bible and what it says about suffering the penalty in myself, that if I would have understood what impurity was all about, then, I mean, he would have been spared that wretched uh, existence that he was suffering at that moment, but that's where it goes. Uh, You know, out on the book table, a hard book, a, a difficult book to read, Robert Gagnon, uh, the Bible and Homosexual Practice. I read the book because of the resources that I can get out of that book. You have all sorts of quotes uh, from health journals and sociological journals, and Robert Gagnon documents uh, hard documentation showing the adverse effects of what Paul is talking, right he, talking about right here in terms of sexual impurity. And Robert Gagnon goes so far as to document how that the, the vast majority, almost 100% of criminal pedophiles are homosexuals. Homosexuals. And that the pedophile community recruits homosexual men more than anybody else into its ranks. I'm sorry to defile you in that sense, but it's true. It's, it, does no, uh, it does no good to try to uh, hide from these facts because it's the world that we live in. It's the world that we live in. It's a world that's being given over by God for the women exchange a natural function for that which is unnatural. All of it having to do with what is unnatural. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, look at that, God gave them over to a depraved or reprobate mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they did not know the ordinance, although they, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Look at that. It's almost like man knows in his heart of hearts that living this way is a death sentence and they don't care. They still run to their excess. They do not do the same. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I knew as I was going to quote Romans all the way through here like this, I would expose us to some very strident language on depravity, but it needs to be, we need to be reminded that this deluding influence that God is giving the world over to is, is terrifying. It's truly judgment. I mean, you can't 
characterized it any other way. It's not just sort of societal ills. It's not just society kind of losing control. This is divine judgment that we're seeing being played out right in front of us. That's why nothing else can explain it. Let's talk about this lie. It's not just about the deluding influence, but it's also the fact that humanity buys into a specific lie. I think it is a specific lie. Now, now here is where commentators sort of, they just kind of go all over the place. They kind of try to lock in, okay, it says in the Greek, tosude, singular, and it is also articular, meaning it has the word the. So it is the one lie. What is that lie? And uh, some people say, well, the lie is believing that uh, the Antichrist is God, because that's what it says there in verse 4. Others say, well, no, it's, it's the rejection of the gospel. And when you reject the gospel, the truth of the gospel, all you have is the lie. The lie of Life outside of the gospel. The lie that promises life but leads to death. I don't know. I haven't taken a hard position on this. but and So when that happens, I usually just quote MacArthur to help me. <laughs> I love MacArthur for that reason. Uh, let, that, let that be known to all of you. When you're just looking for something safe and sound, um, MacArthur is a brilliant guide just celebrated 50 years of expositing Scripture. This is what John MacArthur says, is Antichrist will deceive people with satanically empowered false signs and wonders. His deception only will succeed because it fits into God's sovereign purpose. I checked the commentary on Thessalonians was written when MacArthur had become a full-fledged Calvinism, a Calvinist. God bless him. Thus the emphasis on sovereignty. He will sentence unbelievers to accept evil as if it were good and lies as if it were the truth. Those who continually choose falsehood will be inextricably caught by it. In the words of the Proverbs, Proverbs 5.22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of his sin, meaning his own sin. They will be abandoned by God, MacArthur says, to the consequences of their choice to reject the gospel. That's right, to reject the gospel. So the lie may just be, in fact, a comprehensive thing, a worldview. Uh, looking to the eschatological generation, it will be the final satanic deception of Antichrist and all of his claims and all that he promises. That may embody the lie. It will be the same delusion that the people were under, in, uh, were under during the flood. Before the fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a delusion like this. That life will just keep going as it is. That we can identify with this world and suffer no repercussions for it. God is giving the world over to this Antichrist system because He is confirming them for final judgment. Uh, Maybe a relevant text. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35. See... When their reason is taken away, taken out of the way, when their capacity for discernment is removed, humanity will be powerless to withstand the end time deception that is coming. I don't think we really grasp that. The very wickedness that they take pleasure in in an antichrist fashion will be the very wickedness that will ensnare them in the end. And Psalm 35, interestingly enough, is referring to those who sought the life of The king, the life of God's anointed. Verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come uh, come upon him unawares. And let the net which he hid, catch himself into the very destruction, into that very destruction, 
let him fall. It's as if believing in an antichrist system to the antichrist destruction you will go. What about this destruction? What about this final judgment? Two things I want to point out. Number one, the final judgment, according to the Apostle Paul, will be comprehensive. And number two, the final judgment will be just. Look at verse 12. In order, why do they believe? Why is the influence coming? Why do they believe in the lie? Verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Took pleasure in wickedness. So first of all, it is comprehensive because notice what it says, that they all may be judged. God will punish iniquity wherever it is found, but here it is precisely every person who took part in the system of the Antichrist and rejected the truth of the gospel. We can keep looking into the future, but it's also relevant to now, right? The second thing is this, is that it's not only comprehensive, but God's judgment is totally just because it says they who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in the in wickedness. So in other words, both negatively and positively, both by way of omission and commission, humanity outside of Christ is justly condemned. We can't ever forget that. We can never forget that, especially coming from a point of sovereignty. That yes, God is sovereign over his elect, sovereign over salvation, but man is fully culpable for his or her sin. It's enough that people who reject the offer of the gospel should perish. It's enough that people be damned for their Adamic guilt. In other words, because they're dead in Adam, as Paul says. It's enough that people perish because they have a sinful nature that is opposite of the nature of God, and that would be enough. But what's more is that people will perish because they willfully reject eternal life. Doesn't this remind us of the insanity of sin? What people are rejecting is the greatest thing they could ever have, eternal life. That's why maybe you've heard me preach at UNT several occasions, and I use the word eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. I use it a lot to set before these young students exactly what it is they're forfeiting. In taking pleasure in wickedness, you are forfeiting eternal life. This shouldn't surprise us, though. It's no different than what John says in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. You remember this? This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And and, And Satan uses that fear in a twisted fashion. He uses that fear to keep people in bondage and enslaved to their sin. The very thing that would result in their healing and their redemption. He says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been brought in God. In rejecting the light, people who will be judged rejoiced in darkness. Now, I also said that the judgment of God is comprehensive. So turn with me in your Bibles. I think it's only fitting as we draw this whole study of eschatology to a close to end it on a passage that captures this entire judgment scene. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I once made a gospel track, and the entire gospel track was Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. That's it. So in other words, did you get one of these? People grab it, and immediately, imagine you're an unbeliever, immediately you start reading this. Then I saw a great white throne, And him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. And here's the crucial, critical part. According to their deeds see that it's not according to the sovereignty of god it's not according to god's decree 
It's not according to Calvinism. It's according to their deeds. And so we always have to make uh, uh, that adjustment. We can never become, uh, in our uh, uh, soteriology, we can never believe in the sovereignty of God to the exclusion of human culpability. They are accountable to their deeds. They will be judged according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades, that's where people are presently, by the way, when you die as an unbeliever and go to hell, what we're saying is you go to Hades. You do not go to the ultimate hell yet because that's the lake of fire. Gets even more dreadful at this point. Ominous. Takes your breath away. Hell basically gave up, or or excuse me, Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name, and, and if anyone's name was not found written, In the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Last thing I want to say is that to the degree that this eschatology is inaugurated, is already, already not yet. Brothers and sisters, don't lose your evangelical backbone. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, and our neighbors, our loved ones, our family members, according to this, are headed for the lake of fire. Oh, And our finite, fallible, I believe, our because of our unredeemed humanists, our unglorified minds that have to constantly be set on the things above, we are so quick to forget this. If you really believe this, if you really believe this, it's like one atheist told Ray Comfort once, if I believed this, I'd be crawling on my hands and knees over broken glass to go warn people of this judgment. It's like Spurgeon said, if the dead are going to be damned, let them leap over our bodies as we cling to their feet on their way to hell. If we really truly believe how ominous the judgment to come is, and according to Scripture, it is ominous, then we would be duty-bound to warn them, to love our neighbors enough to, to risk ending a relationship over it, to risk ending a friendship over it. Get mad at me, hate me, spit in my face, I don't care. I love you enough to tell you that the lake of fire awaits. Laugh at me, scoff at me, mock me, and ride me off as a fool. Fine. I guess I'll be like Paul, a fool for Christ's sake. Fine. But you're heading to a place of unbearable misery, and I don't want you to go there. It's that simple. Don't forget that simple evangelical truth, brothers and sisters, because in all of our theology, all of, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why I do evangelism is because you guys hear me in Sunday school, I could just get caught up in the glory cloud and not come out. Like, I'm fine just living in the abstract world and, and just, you know, sitting in my library, surrounded by my, my books and all the great minds, and then just forget the world. But that's not loving, and that's not compassion. And that's not sane. That's not sane. It's like I often tell people when I'm preaching, it's like I'm the guy outside the building of 9-11. I have prior knowledge about what's about to go on that in a few moments, even though you're going up to your old workstation, you're sipping on your latte, and you're about to log in like you do every other day, I know that in a few moments you'll be leaping to your death out of 150 stories with your body on fire. That happened. I mean, I can't believe I saw video of that happening. People jumping out of the 9-11 buildings and their bodies burning all the way down uh, as they go scream to their death. Can you imagine? I said it's at the infinitely 10,000 times worse than that. You're jumping into a Christless eternity in hell. And you're, gonna, you're ready to sell your soul for a bowl of soup. My friend, you, would, you owe it to your own good reason just to look into it. Just be rational for a moment about it. Think about it. It's yourself. It's your own good, it, I mean, it's your own uh, good interest. That's it. I, I'm not telling you to give me money. I'm not even begging you to come to my church. I'm just saying, man, you need to flee the wrath to come because as Jonathan Edwards says, 
You cannot bear hell among devils. Let's pray. Father, Lord, eschatology should lead naturally to evangelism. As we look ahead at the ominous judgment that's coming, we're reminded of two things. Number one, we are eternally grateful and comforted by the saving work of Jesus Christ. But we are also broken and sorrowful that our neighbors and our family members and our loved ones and the people that we just pass in the streets, that they're headed to an end (laughs) that is unthinkable, unbearable, impossible. And yet, such is the truth. And we help, we, we pray, God, we believe, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us, Lord, in our in our view of your judgment. Strengthen us, Lord, in our eschatology. And help us, Lord, to put our hand over our mouth, as it were, and to just say, our God reigns. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Who is man to reply back to God? And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to think your thoughts after you, to put on the mind of Christ, not only for ourselves, but for our fellow man, so that we could lovingly, with all, with all conviction, and with the authority of your word, and with hearts that are broken for them, that we would warn them to flee the wrath to come. Give us a mouth, God. Like the Apostle Paul says, Lord, help us to speak boldly as we ought to. As we ought to. I know that many of us here lack evangelistic boldness. I know it's hard. But I pray, God, that I pray, Lord, that that you would take the timid among us and that you would loosen their tongues Because something greater is at stake than our dignity. Something greater is at stake than our our, our sense of civility and peace. And it is the judgment of God. And it is the fate of the unbeliever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, knowing the fear of the Lord, as Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, let us persuade men. In Jesus' name, amen.